Well, it has been a pleasure uh, being with you all this weekend and uh, very grateful for the kindness uh, and encouragement you've extended to me. I did comment in the first service that uh, uh, remembering a meeting is not necessarily a good sign. Uh, but particularly when you remember the date, the month, and the year. So if you would turn with me to Mark chapter 9, I want to read first first eight verses. I want to start the reading actually with verse 1 because I think there's an important statement there that uh, I want to pick up on in the sermon. But first of all, let's ask the Lord's blessing on the reading and preaching of His Word. O Lord God, loving Heavenly Father, You are indeed a God who dwells in unapproachable light. And yet You have revealed Yourself to us in Your works of creation and providence, in the words of Your Scriptures, and supremely in and through the person and work, the humanity of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, this day as we reflect upon him, we ask, O God, that your Holy Spirit would shine light into our darkened minds and our hearts, and that we might glance something by faith of that which we will one day see fully with sight. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord. And he, Jesus, said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Praise God for His holy word. Biographies are a very interesting genre of literature. I'm a historian by trade, and biographies are an interesting subset of historical uh, writing. Biographies, stories of a life or of lives. The material is selected very carefully. It's always arranged in such a way as to send a particular message or to teach certain things about the life of the individual subject. It's why that you know, we can buy numerous biographies of a particular historical figure, and each one will be different in some way. I have a, a, a particular interest in Napoleon. I've got a shelf at home full of biographies of Napoleon, and each of them sheds a different light on the one man and his life. One biography might present him as a military strategist, another as a key figure in the aftermath of the French Revolution. Another might uh, deal with him as somebody who, who tried to remake Europe in his own image. Most recently, there's been a biography of uh, Napoleon that uh, reflects upon his impact upon uh, landscape gardening. Each of those biographies selects certain events from Napoleon's life as a means of trying to teach us something about the man. 
And when biographies, of course, contain the same material, when repeated biographies contain the same material, it's a reasonable assumption that the repeated material is so important that no biography of this person could be written that doesn't deal with it in some way. So, for example, in every biography of Napoleon, of which I'm aware, the Battle of Waterloo has to figure somewhere. You cannot know about Napoleon's life without at some point addressing the significance, the impact of the Battle of Waterloo. Well, the Gospels in the New Testament are, in a sense, four biographies of the Lord Jesus Christ. Each of them gives a particular angle or reveals a particular facet of his person or his work. The passage we looked at this morning, the Transfiguration, it occurs in three of the four Gospels. It occurs in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, if something occurs in one Gospel, it's clearly important. The Bible is a divinely inspired book. There are no wasted verses. There is no extraneous information in the Bible. But if something uh, occurs in all three Gospels, if three Gospel writers have, as they've sifted the material on Jesus' life, come to the conclusion that this event needs to be included, then we're dealing with something of tremendous significance, such that to omit this event is to risk omitting something very important about Christ himself. Now, you might say, well, you've said three out of four Gospels. Why, why does John omit the transfiguration? We will come to that later in the sermon. At this point, I simply want to press on you the fact that the transfiguration is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and is therefore very, very important. Gospels, of course, are all dealing with the fundamental question of who is Jesus? What does he do? Where does his significance lie? And I think the transfiguration in itself, provides very rich answers to that question. I can't possibly probe the full depth of the significance of the transfiguration this morning, but I'm going to suggest to you that there are at least three things we can draw from this passage, particularly as it's set forth in the Gospel of Mark. First, we can see that the context and the language of the transfiguration the way that Mark presents it, we might say, in a literary way, clearly indicates that Jesus is somebody of great significance. Secondly, the light, the light to which Mark refers in the transfiguration, reveals almost as nothing else does who Jesus is in terms of his person. And then finally, the companions on the mountain that day. The companions of Jesus at the Transfiguration reveal who he is in terms of his work. So the first point, his significance. Second point, his person. Third point, his work. The first point then, the context of the Transfiguration indicates that Jesus is somebody of significance. I've already said that the Gospels are selective narratives. They don't give a day-by-day -day account of Jesus' life. We don't read about everything that Jesus ever said or did. The writers, humanly speaking, are making selections about what to include and what to leave out. 
Mark is a particularly concise gospel. It's a very short gospel compared to the others. And one of the things I think we can infer from that is, if Mark puts in details, they carry an extraordinary amount of weight or an extraordinary amount of significance. He doesn't waste his words. Every word kind of holds great significance. A good example of this might come from Mark chapter 5. Uh, it's the story of the, the healing of the woman with the flow of blood uh, and of the raising of Jairus' daughter uh, from the dead. And of course, if you know the story, you know that the reason Jairus' daughter dies, uh, well, Jesus hears that she's sick and he's on his way uh, to heal her and he's delayed by the woman with the flow of blood. And that leads to the death of the child who Christ will then raise from the dead. What's interesting in that passage is we don't know the name of the woman, but we do know the name of Jairus' daughter. Raises a question of why would Mark stick that detail in when not telling us about the name of the woman with the flow of blood? I think the answer is he knew that as his gospel was circulating in the early days of the church, people would remember Jairus. He was a man of social significance. So Mark is doing something there so his earliest audience would be able to tie themselves into the story. Yes, I remember Jairus. He was the guy who was the elder in that synagogue. Nobody would have known who the woman with the flow of blood was, so Mark doesn't bother mentioning her name. There are a number of little details that sort of, at first glance, don't seem to fulfill any purpose, but are actually very significant in the way Mark tells this story. First thing is, notice, he mentions the timing. He says this happens after six days. Jesus made this statement about the coming of the kingdom, and then after six days, he leads his disciples out and up the mountain. If you knew your Hebrew scriptures, of course, six days is, it's not a, 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 just a marker of time. It would immediately alert you to the idea of creation. Genesis 1, God creates in six days. When you hear the language of six days, Mark could have just said, sometime after Jesus, da-dum-da-dum-da-dum. But he doesn't, he says, after six days. He wants you to think about creation. He's pointing towards that teaching of Paul in 2 Corinthians and in Colossians when Paul will talk about Christ as the new creation or the firstborn of the new creation. Immediately as this rather simple and straightforward story kicks off, we realize it isn't quite as simple and straightforward as all that. We're being taught something about the significance of Christ. He is pointing here, Mark, towards the idea of Christ as new creation. Secondly, we're told they go up a mountain. Again, if you know your Old Testament, you'll know great things often happen on mountains. Genesis 22, Abraham is commanded to take his son up a mountain to sacrifice him. We will return to Genesis 22 later in this sermon. Mountain is a portentous place there. Moses receives the law at the top of Mount Sinai. Elijah engages in round one of the battle of Jehovah versus Baal on the top of Mount Carmel. 
Mountains are places that are in Scripture full of drama and significance. Somebody going up a mountain is usually a significant thing for the history of redemption. We might say, when somebody goes up a mountain, the story of salvation is moving forward in some significant way. So when Mark says he was going up a mountain, he's leading his disciples up a mountain, you know, our spidey senses should be starting to tingle at this point. Something important is about to happen. Why are mountains significant? We don't know. Uh, they're remote places. One could be very vulnerable at the top of a mountain. I, I remember once uh, walking up Ben Nevis. It's not a particularly high mountain by world standards, but it's the biggest mountain in the United Kingdom. And when I reached the summit of Ben Nevis, a thunderstorm swept across the top. Uh, there's nothing more vulnerable than somebody stuck on a mountaintop in the middle of a thunderstorm. You feel very dependent upon God's grace at that particular moment in time. You have nowhere to hide. Maybe it's the vulnerability that mountains bring with them. Maybe it's the intimacy. Jesus here is taking up his inner circle onto the top of a mountain. If you've ever been uh, hill climbing with a friend, you know, well, on the way up and when you get to the top, it can be a very intimate sort of experience. Maybe it's all three, we don't know, but what we do know is this. Mountains are significant. Something big is about to happen. The language that Mark uses here is also significant. Transfiguration. It's the language used about what happens to Jesus in this situation. But elsewhere in the New Testament, it's not used often, but it's applied to believers. Romans 12, verse 2, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, translated, I think, in the ESV as transformation. It's actually the same word as transfiguration. When Mark uses the same language that Paul is using to talk about the Christian life and the goal of the Christian life, we realize that well, what's happening to Jesus here is not just something of significance to him. It's not just a nice thing happening to Jesus. It's setting up something that is paradigmatic for the Christian and for the Christian life. Jesus undergoes a radical transformation of appearance before them. That points to something tremendous going on and also points towards something that is going to be of significance to the Christian believer as well. So the first thing is the whole way this story is being set up should be alerting us to the fact that this is something that is going to be spectacular and it's also going to be of urgent personal significance as well. Brings us to the second point. The light of the transfiguration reveals who Jesus is in terms of his person. We're told in the text that uh, his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. White clothes are incredibly impractical. I'm inclined to say they're incredibly impractical generally. Though I tilt towards wearing white shirts because I'm sort of, I don't know if there is a strict term for this condition, but I don't know what colors coordinate with other colors. But I do know that any tie goes with a white shirt. So I put a white shirt on, I grab any tie from my drawer, and my wife isn't going to humiliate me by sending me back to, to change the tie to another color. 
Other than that, white is generally a very impractical color because it gets dirty very quickly, particularly in the kind of world that Jesus is working in here. Dirty, dusty world of the ancient Near East. White is not practical. And yet, his clothes go white. Well, the first thing I think we might draw from that is something here is being indicated about Jesus' purity. White clothes often function as a sign of purity. Most notably, of course, at weddings. Most brides, in my experience, wear white dresses. Why do they wear white dresses? They wear white dresses typically as a symbol of their purity as they approach marriage. The bride will come in wearing a white dress. Uh, it's a symbol of unspoiled purity. I think Jesus' clothes grow, glow white here because one of the things we're meant to understand is this is a pure man. This is a man in whom there is no stain of sin. There is no dirtiness. Something's being revealed. Secondly, we hear about the the radiance, radiant and intensely white. Radiance, I think, points us back to the Old Testament, to God's glory, the shining radiance of God's glory. And it also points us towards light. Light is fascinating. It's used in the Bible, of course, as a way of describing God. God is light. The Gospel of John talks about God as being light. You'll find references to God as light in the Old Testament. In some ways, it's, it's a perfect, perfect metaphor for God. Why? Well, light is very mysterious, isn't it? Light is everywhere. It's invisible. But if it isn't there, you can't see anything. That's odd. I look out today on you before me, and I know the room is full of light. But I don't see the light. I see you. You're illuminated by the light. We know, of course, from the Old Testament that God is one upon whom no one can gaze in His glory and live. Another thing about light is this. The intense the more intense the light, the harder it is to look at directly. You know, every few years we'll have those uh, total eclipses of the sun. And often in the days running up to it, there'll be some excitement developing in the news media. And always there will be that, that mantra advice, advice, don't look directly at the eclipse. If you're going to look directly, make sure you've got special glasses that filter out the light. Or maybe look at the, at the eclipse in a, some sort of mirror that filters out the light. Because if you look directly at the sun, waiting for it to be eclipsed, you're going to damage your eyes, you're going to damage your retina, you're going to damage uh, the cells at the back of your eye that enable you to see things. You cannot look at the sun directly with impunity because it is so intense. Well, imagine if God is light, he is far more intense than the sun. Looking directly at God, we might say, would blind you immediately. Which raises the question, how can we see God? How can we see who God is? Well, here we get a good example of that. 
ancient theologians, particularly a man called Gregory of Nazianzus in the late 4th century, who were fascinated by the idea of God and fascinated by the idea of God manifest in the flesh. And the two things tie together. Think about it. God is invisible. So how do we see him? Well, the answer is, he's manifest in the flesh. The light is visible because it radiates through the flesh of Christ. Maybe you've done this uh, as, as, a, as a kid or maybe as an adult. Uh, you, know, you get hold of a flashlight. You're in the dark. You put the flashlight on and you stick it in your mouth. And your cheeks glow red. Anybody in the room can see your cheeks because they're glowing red. You don't see the flashlight light. What you see is the way your cheeks are illuminated by the flashlight light. So you sort of do see the flashlight, but mediated through, refracted through the flesh. We cannot gaze on God directly. But we can see the light of God manifest in the flesh. That's what happens here. The disciples are seeing God. The curtain is being raised a little bit, just for a moment, so the disciples can see the light of God in a form that is perfectly accommodated to their capacity. And that brings me back to that question that I raised earlier, or the comment I made earlier. You know, the transfiguration isn't in the Gospel of John. And yet, if it's that important, why isn't it there? Well, it's not there, I think, for this reason. It doesn't need to be there in John. His whole Gospel is about God, the light, manifest in and through the flesh. That's how he starts his Gospel. The other Gospel writers... It fulfills a function for them that, God do, uh, that John doesn't need. John is talking about this on every page. Every page. So he doesn't need to include it as a specific discrete event. Because what this teaches, he teaches at great length on every page of his gospel. And think about this as well. It's going to be significant. I'm going to come back to this a little bit later. Seeing God is transformative. Think about Moses. When Moses goes into the tent and meets with God, and we have that, that wonderful phrase, I was giving a lecture just a week ago at a college in New England on uh, friendship. Uh, and I, I used the verse uh, in Exodus where uh, we told that uh, Moses would be in the tent of meeting. And there God would speak to Moses as a man, face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. It's a powerful verse, powerful verse. When Moses would come out of the tent, of course, he would glow. He would have to cover his own face because he had been transfigured by being in the presence of the light of God. We'll come back to that in a few moments. So, secondly, I think the transfiguration reveals to us who Jesus is. Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. We get a glimpse, we might say. We get a glimpse of the inner life of God there in a special way. Thirdly, the companions at the transfiguration reveal who Jesus is in terms of his work. Number of companions on the mountain that day. 
uh, we have the amazing appearance of Moses and Elijah. Moses, I think, well, who is Moses? He, he represents the law, doesn't he? And Elijah, well, he's one of the greatest of the prophets. We have the law and the prophets. Remember that passage at the end of Luke where Jesus rebukes his disciples on the road to Emmaus. He rebukes them. He doesn't just say to them, you got it wrong, let me explain. He rebukes them as foolish and slow of heart to believe because they did not see how the law and the prophets culminated in him. Here we get it. Transfiguration by bringing in Moses and Elijah points us to Christ as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Of course, both men were themselves associated with mountains. Mount Sinai, Mount Carmel. Both, we might say, were transfigured. Moses would glow when he came out from the tent, having talked to God face to face, as a man might speak to his friend. Elijah is whisked up to heaven. He's transformed in the twinkling of an eye when he's carried up to heaven by the flaming chariot. Here, Jesus appears, I think, as the fulfillment and the perfection of that which those two pointed towards. Second set of companions are the disciples. There's only three of them. You know, the twelve apostles, only three of them are present on the mountain. It's interesting, when I first got interested in the transfiguration a few years ago, I, I dropped a note to a, an Eastern Orthodox priest friend uh, and said, you know, what do I need to read uh, relative to your tradition on the transfiguration? If you know much about Eastern Orthodoxy, you'll know that the, the transformation of the human flesh through the presence of Christ is a big theme. And he recommended, he said, well, you really ought to read the, the great early church sermons on it. There's a wonderful little book, Light on the Mountain, where they're all gathered together in English translation. It's always fun to read sermons or commentaries from another era because each generation asks its own questions in some way. Some questions come up again and again, but sometimes you get an interesting insight into things that people were preoccupied with in previous generations that we don't think about now. The thing that perplexed the early church writers about the transfiguration was this. Why only three apostles? Why not all twelve? The answer they came up with was, uh, it's speculative, but sort of plausible. The answer was, this is a glimpse of heaven. It is a unique privilege for these men to see this. And if all twelve apostles had been involved, then Judas would have seen it. And if Jesus had only invited eleven of them, Judas would have known that he'd been rumbled. I have no idea if that's a correct interpretation of what's going on at all. It just strikes me as interesting. Different times, different ages ask different questions of the text. What we can say, I think, is this. Uh, the disciples' response indicates they're not there yet. They still haven't fully grasped the significance of Christ. Gee, uh, Peter offers a, a sort of inept, stammering response, doesn't he? refers to Jesus as rabbi. He offers to put up tents, which is almost certainly a reference to the Feast of Booths, the anticipation of the Messianic age. Peter seems to fail to grasp that the glory being witnessed on the mountain is not the end of the story. It's not that the Messianic age has arrived. It's a foretaste 
of what must and can only be delivered by the cross. And of course, we're told in the accounts of the transfiguration that Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah about his exodus. He's talking to them about the suffering that must come. So we, the second thing we learn from this is the disciples, they're not there yet. Even the inner circle, even Peter, James, and John haven't fully grasped the significance of what they've seen before and what they see that day. Thirdly, the third presence, though, is the Father. In terms reminiscent of the baptism, the Father acknowledges Christ as His Son. He reaffirms the baptism. I think in declaring Christ to be his son. I also think he reinforces Jesus' authority. Listen to him. You see him talking to these two prophets that you would certainly listen to. But above all, you need to listen to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I think the language of beloved son, which is used, of course, at baptism and used again here, the language of sonship, I think if you were Jewish on that day, it would carry your mind back to Genesis 22. The language of beloved sonship is used in Genesis 22. Abraham, take your son, your beloved son, to a place where I shall show you and there sacrifice him. Many years ago, my wife and I, we had had, uh, dear friends, Jewish friends in Philadelphia. And their son, their oldest son and Our oldest son were good friends, and we were invited to the son's bar mitzvah. So we went to the synagogue uh, on the the Saturday, on the the Jewish Sabbath, uh, and uh, we witnessed uh, the the bar mitzvah of our friend's son. And uh, our friend's son actually read Genesis 22 in Hebrew uh, that morning, and then the rabbi preached on uh, Genesis 22. And I think, this is fascinating. I wonder what a Jewish rabbi would make of what I consider to be one of the most mysterious passages in the whole of the Bible. Why does God ask Abraham to do something that is really contrary to God's will? Sacrifice his son. Well, what was fascinating was the rabbi did not end with a statement. He ended with a question. The sermon ended this way. What kind of a God asks a man to sacrifice his son? His only son, the son whom he loves. To which the answer I wanted to give, though I was too polite because I was a guest in my friend's synagogue, was the Trinitarian Christian God. The New Testament is the answer to Genesis 22. As mysterious as Genesis 22 is, the resolution is that God himself provides his own son, his beloved son, for the sacrifice. The language here, the failure of the disciples, and the language that the Father uses point us towards the sacrifice of Christ that is necessary, that is to come. So as we close then, how might we draw some practical ideas from this passage? What difference should this passage make to us today? Well, first of all, I would say to you, it's a key passage in understanding who God is. It's a Trinitarian passage, the Father addressing the Son. It's a Trinitarian passage. Secondly, I think it teaches us that Jesus is God, 
And it also teaches us something important about God's revelation of himself. Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. How do we know God? We might say the deity shines out through the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. It gives us as well, therefore, a glimpse into the nature of the kingdom to come. Why do I begin my reading with verse 1, which is really a, a sort of the tail end of a previous discourse? Well, in that discourse, Jesus says, some of you standing here today will not die until you see the kingdom of God coming in its power. And Mark, who brilliantly structures his gospel in many, many ways, immediately moves us to the transfiguration. What is Jesus saying there? Some of you are going to see me transfigured. What you see in the transfiguration is an anticipation of the coming kingdom of God. What can we say? Well, it's, as I used the language earlier on, the curtain is just momentarily lifted before it drops back again. But one day, the curtain will be lifted. And we will gaze upon Christ, transfigured before us. Perhaps you wonder, you know, what is heaven going to be like? What are many mysterious things about heaven? I'm pretty confident in saying it will not look like sitting around on a cloud with wings playing a harp. That's the sort of popular idea of heaven, isn't it? There is a long and hallowed tradition in the history of the church that says heaven will be a vision. Sometimes it's called the beatific or the blessed vision. If you want to get a, a sort of a beautiful attempt literarily to express this. Look at the, the closing uh, sections of Dante's Paradiso, the great medieval Italian poet attempts to try to communicate what the blessed vision will be like in poetry. It's powerful and it's moving. You might say, well, yes, but what will the blessed vision be? What, what will it be like? What will its content be? I'll say this, it will be gazing upon the flesh of Christ transfigured for all eternity. We can never, even in eternity, gaze upon God as he is in himself. Because we're finite. We're incapable of grasping the infinite God. What we are capable of grasping is God as he has accommodated himself to our capacity. We may not be able to look directly into the torch's light, but we can see the cheeks of our friends glow red in the dark when they put the flashlight into their mouth. So I use the word torch there. It means something different in America. Torch equals flashlight uh, in, in English. Uh, well, in, in English, English. I, you speak English too. I, I do not wish to be ethnically insensitive at that point. Uh, what will heaven be like? It will be gazing upon God, refracted through the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may say, well, that sounds a bit boring. For all eternity, just gazing at the resurrected flesh? No, it won't be boring at all. It'll be transformative. When Moses spoke to God face to face as a man speaks to a friend, he was transformed. Those who stand in the presence of God will be transformed as they gaze upon the deity shining through the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it will be glorious. How is it that Paul in 2 Corinthians after going through that great litany of all his sufferings, say, and yet, all of this is but a light momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory that is to come. 
What does that weight of glory look like? It looks like the glorious being of God shining through the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know many of you. I don't know any of you well. I don't know many of you. um, uh, Many of you I don't know at all. But whatever you're facing this week in your life, however serious the challenges are, however great the struggles you are facing, you can relativize them. You can relativize them by bringing to mind what is to come, the eternal weight of God's glory. And what does that look like? It looks like the transfiguration. Praise God for revealing himself in this way to his disciples at that moment. Let us pray. Lord God and loving Heavenly Father, we do thank you for revealing yourself to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We would ask this day that the light of your countenance might indeed shine upon us, that we might know by faith now that which we will know fully by sight in eternity. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to close with the Aaronic blessing from number six. And notice the language of face and shining. Uh, the basis of the Aaronic blessing is fulfilled, of course, and found in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.